Welcome to the Resources for Integrated Care webinar, Diagnosing and Treating Dementia, Current Best Practices. This podcast is exited from a webinar presented live on July 30th, 2019. In this podcast, Michelle Panlulio, a nurse practitioner and care manager at the UCLA Department of Geriatrics, discusses health system-based programs for patients with Alzheimer's and dementia as well as gives an overview of current practices and treatment at the UCLA Department of Geriatrics. Good morning, everybody. My name is Michelle Panilio, and I'm a nurse practitioner. I'm also one of the uh, dementia care specialists at the UCLA Alzheimer's and Dementia Care Program. So for my segment of this webinar, I'm going to be talking about the health system-based care programs um, and taking care of patients with dementia. There will be some details here that I will not be able to cover due to time constraints. However, I will try to do my best to be clear about the topics at hand. For the purposes of this program, I will be referring to individuals with dementia as patients. Next slide, please. So care programs um, taking care of patients with dementia that are implemented in the health system typically include the following. So it's usually led by a physician or a nurse practitioner. Uh, patients are seen face-to-face on, for annual visits, and the coordination of their care occurs within the medical system by using electronic health records. During these visits, or, we write for orders. Uh, they may be for medications, equipment, or sometimes referrals to other specialties. Uh, Two examples of such programs are the Indiana University Healthy Aging Brain Center, the HABC, and my program, which is the UCLA Alzheimer's and Dementia Care Program, UCLA ADC. Next slide, please. So our program began in 2011 after we received some philanthropic funds. Um, We had originally planned to enroll 250 patients. However, a year after we started the program, we received a CMMI award, and this allowed us to expand the program to 1,000 patients. So now, over eight years later, we've been able to serve 2,600 patients and their families with currently 700 active patients. The goals of the ADC program are to maximize patient function independence and dignity while trying to minimize caregiver strain and reduce unnecessary costs. Next slide, please. For patients to be eligible to be in our program, they must have a diagnosis of dementia and they must live outside a nursing, a nursing home. Patients must be referred into ADC uh, by a physician who is willing to partner with a dementia care specialist. Lastly, but most importantly, they need to have a family member or a caregiver who is willing to participate in the patient care. The philosophy that we have taken is that we approach the patients and the caregiver as a dyad, so both need support. This is something that I talk about during the very first appointment in that I'll mention something along the lines of, you know, Mrs. Smith, you are my patient, however, you only count for half of the package. The other half of the package is is the people here in this room, which are your caregivers. Um, As a program, we recognize that the care for patients' dementia is a long journey, and you can have good days and bad days. A large component of our program is that 
although we do care for our patients within the UCLA health system, um, we also rely very heavily on our community-based organizations, our CBOs, and I'll speak more about them later on in this presentation. Next slide, please. So once a patient is referred to the dementia care program, um, the dementia care specialists do not assume primary care of the patient. We only assume the dementia care for that patient and that family. The primary care doctors and the geriatricians will stay the same. Next slide, please. The initial assessment is probably the most important appointment that we have with that patient. It's quite lengthy. It'll go anywhere from 90 minutes up to two hours. And I've been asked so many times, you know, what could you possibly talk about in two hours while you have a patient with dementia in the room? And, you know, I'm never, it doesn't surprise me anymore um, how, how quickly that time goes because everybody is really involved in the discussion, the patient, the caregivers, and ourselves. Sometimes there are multiple family members. So during the initial assessment, we will talk about the dementia history. We will perform a physical and mental status exam. Um, and excuse me, by caregiver, I meant to I meant uh, paid or unpaid caregivers. So part of that initial assessment is we will discuss their current concerns. That may be related to medications, behaviors, or patient safety. And it's important to address those concerns because many times their concerns may be different from ours. Um, part of that appointment is that we will assess the resources. So who, um, who are the people who are, who are responsible for their medical care? Who is responsible for managing their finances? Who is giving them their medications? And how are they getting to appointments? Part of that assessment also includes financial assessment. And, you know, although at that point I might have known that patient and their family for maybe about 20 minutes or 30 minutes, most patients are willing to divulge that information. I usually preface um, those questions by saying, you know, it's, it's my job to help you plan for your future. And I will say, where do you see yourself in about six months? Where do you see yourself in, in two years? And as your dementia care specialist, how can I help you get there? Another segment of that appointment is that we will discuss advanced care planning. Uh, we ask for the patients and the caregivers to bring their advanced directives, but if they don't have them, we'll help them fill one out or at least get the discussion started on who they would like to make medical decisions for them on their behalf if they're not able to. Part of that appointment, we also talk about the POLST um, for advanced care planning, which is the physician's orders for life-sustaining treatment. Um, that can take some time. Part of that assessment for, our, for us dementia care specialists is although we are doing an assessment of the patient, we also do an assessment of the caregiver and the family members and how they interact with each other. So we try to determine just how much education and how much support they're going to need and if they need any, what is the best way of learning for them? Is it through books, videos, counseling, or courses? Next slide, please. 
once we see our patients for the initial appointment, um, we will assign them to a particular acuity. And this, for me, is very important because it determines my day-to-day -day schedule and who I will be contacting on that particular day. Um, so for red patients, these are patients um, that have had two or more ER visits or hospitalizations in the past six months. Some of these patients may have uncontrolled or problematic behavioral issues that may result in inpatient psychiatric hospitalizations. Yellow patients, uh, I'm sorry, red patients are called at least once a month. Yellow patients are those patients who have been in the ER or been hospitalized once in the past six months. And these patients may have new or worsening behavioral issues. Uh, Follow-up calls for our yellow patients are done at least once every two months. For our green patients, um, this is the majority of our patients, and these are the patients that are coasting, they're stable, no behavioral issues, and no ER visits or hospitalizations in the past six months. These patients are called once every three months at minimum. Next slide, please. So as far as ongoing care, aside from the calls and the emails that they get from us, depending on their acuity, we see them on an annual basis in person, um, both with the patient and the caregiver in the office. If, if something happens and they manage to end up in the emergency room or in the hospital for any reason, we as dementia care specialists are notified immediately by using the electronic medical records. And at that point, it would be our policy to call them, call the family, and make sure that they're okay and co contact the current medical team at the hospital and offer them any of our assistance. Next slide, please. I had kind of alluded earlier on how heavily we rely on our CBOs, our community-based organizations. Um, when we started the program, we identified several local CBOs that we thought would provide beneficial services to our patients and the caregivers in our program. Um, we identified key personnel within each CBO and we made formal introductions to key staff. And as new employees, we do spend some significant time visiting each site and obtaining um, a list of their services provided by each CBO and the cost of each services, of each service. During that time, we also tried to attend one of the events and see if they are appropriate for any of our patients, depending on their stage of dementia. Over the past few years, we have developed a voucher program, and I think the easiest way that I can describe that is you can consider it as a gift certificate of some sort where it will pay for some of the services, whether it be for the patient or the caregivers, and our program will provide these vouchers at the discretion of the dementia care specialist. Next slide, please. So on this slide are some of the services that are provided um, for our patients and the caregivers by our CBOs. For the patients, they do provide adult daycare and some programs for enhancing brain health. For our families and our caregivers, they provide counseling, case management, support groups, uh, there are a couple that provide legal and financial counseling, and most of them do provide some sort of education, whether it's through workshops, uh, classes, handouts, or webinars like this one. Next slide, please. 
On this slide are some of the CBOs that our organization partners with. Next slide, please. I won't go into detail with this in the interest of time. However, there are two, um, I just wanted to identify two common barriers for patients and caregivers in work, when working with CBOs. And this is something that we've learned over time. Um, I think Dr. Bass alluded to several of these uh, when he spoke earlier. So one of the main barriers for, for our patients is that there's no specific contact person or a number provided for the CBO. Um, it's not enough to, for any of us to recommend that, you know, I think you should contact the Alzheimer Association, here's their 800 number. Um, what we found through our program that works is that we will get, give them a warm handoff to whomever is the director and give a direct number and a full name for that person that they need to contact. Another barrier that I would discuss, I'd like to discuss is majority of the time, the caregivers and the families are simply not knowledgeable about the services that are being provided at the facility. So I think it would be beneficial, and at least from my experience, whenever we are recommending services, make, try to make it a specific service and instead of something that's generalized that's appropriate for that particular patient in their stage of dementia as well as the family members. So for example, it would be more appropriate to say, I think you should call um, Miss Anna Smith and her, this is her phone number, this is her direct number and her email. And this program that I would like for you to sign up is called Music Men's Minds. Next slide, please. On this slide are some other common barriers uh, for patients. Next slide, please. So part, part of our work with our CBOs is that we do maintain continuous contact with them. Most of my CBOs communicate with me on a daily basis um, through emails or phone calls about our program. However, twice a year we do have a steering committee and during that time um, the UCLA ADC key personnel as well as the directors and other key personnel of our CBOs get together at UCLA and we have meetings that are about an hour, an hour and a half each time. And during that time, we will talk about any program updates, um, any awards, achievements, future goals, or any introduction of new staff. Next slide, please. Patients in the ADC program, I'll cover this very quickly. Um, they, they score about a 17.4 out of 30 when they're doing the mini mental status exam. Uh, this falls under the moderate to advanced stages of the disease. For our caregivers, about 60% of them are the children of our patients and 40% of them are the spouses of our patients. Next slide, please. Next slide, please. So I wanted to spend a little bit of time talking about our caregivers in the program. Um, at baseline, about 14% of them report severe depression. And again, these are, these are people who are taking care of patients with dementia. So I think that's important to address. About 36% of them report high stress level. 80% of our caregivers at baseline reported that although the patient's doctor understood how dementia and behavioral problems complicate other health conditions, 
only 26% of them reported that they had a health professional who could help them about dementia-related issues. Next slide, please. I'm sorry, next slide, please. Caregiver satisfaction with ADC. So caregivers, we have found, like our program very well. Um, anywhere from 90 to 92% have reported that they felt that their concerns were listened to and that their time was well spent. 92% would refer the program to others. Next slide, please. At the one-year outcome, caregivers in our program reported that their distress from the patient's behavioral symptoms were significantly reduced, their overall strain was less, and that their depressive symptoms were reduced. Next slide, please. Next slide, please. Next slide, please. So we have the slide that says one year changes in caregiver experience and self-efficacy. I think in the interest of time, we can just um, move forward. One okay. more slide, please. One more slide. One more slide. One more slide, please. Okay. So at our one-year timeline, um, at that time, we have had about 279 referring physicians, and they liked this. About 61% of them reported that we provided uh, valuable medical recommendations, and 85% that said that the program made valuable behavioral recommendations. 90% of our referring physicians would recommend the care to other patients. Next slide, please. So at the two-year timeline at ADC, our patients were found to have a 20% reduction in emergency room visits, a 21% reduction in ICU stays, a 26% reduction in hospital stays, and an overall reduction of 40% less um, nursing home facility placement. Thank you for listening. This podcast is presented by the Lewin Group and is supported through the Medicare and Medicaid Coordination Office at the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. MMCO is dedicated to helping beneficiaries enrolled in Medicare and Medicaid have access to seamless, high-quality health care that includes the full range of covered services in both programs. To support providers in their efforts to deliver more integrated, coordinated care, MMCO is developing technical assistance and actionable tools based on successful innovations and care models. To learn more about current efforts and resources, please visit our website or follow us on Twitter for more details. Our Twitter handle is at integrate underscore care.